Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This season, we'll be bringing you some of our favorite panels from past festivals, along with behind-the-scenes commentary and some of our fondest memories about putting it all together, while also giving you an inside look to what's happening with this year's virtual festival, which we're calling ATX TV From the Couch. It's like a flashback episode and a spoiler alert all rolled into one. So get back on the couch, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy talking TV together. Emily. Kate. It's so weird because you rarely call me Emily. M. But it feels, I mean, I know that that's a strong starting off place, but it always sounds weird when you say it. Because even when you're referring to me to other people, you call me M. That is true. I actually have to undo calling myself Kate and you M with strangers when I sign emails. Because oftentimes you and I sign emails like from Kate and M or Emily and Kate or whatever. And I make sure if I don't actually know the person that it's Caitlin and Emily. And I actually have to go back and do the extra. It feels so formal, but I understand there should be an earned Kate and M that I, I agree. It used to throw me off because now people know me as Kate because I signed my emails, Kate. And so then I would meet people and they'd be like, hi, Kate. And I'm like, I don't know you. Why are you calling me Kate? And then I realized it was my fault because I had been signing emails that way. And they assumed that is not just my name, which it is. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it feels like it was a thing that like my friends and family called me, but then because I'm lazy when writing my emails, it became Kate. And so then strangers called me that anyway. I mean, it is very true. It is a, it is a thing because M does feel more like a nickname and Kate can be more of just a name, but very few people are just M. Right. Fun facts. Fun facts of the day. I was thinking in starting out, so it's Monday, so we are 25 days away from the festival. Friday, when this comes out, we'll be 21. But this is now our fourth episode. Fifth episode. Fifth, fifth episode. episode. Good yep. job, you. You're welcome. And I thought people might want to know, you know, like, we announced last week that we're doing Cougar Town and Scrubs still. And so, of course, we've been listening to Zach Braff and Donald Faison's podcast, Fake Doctors, Real Friends. Yep. And they talk about how Donald is in his closet. I don't know if they've talked about if Zach's in his closet. I think Donald's hiding from his kids in Yeah, his I think so, too. I feel that he is trying to get away from the family while they record. Right. And so then I've been also listening to, like, Dak Shepard's podcast. And him and Monica are actually, like, kind of quarantined together. So they're in the same space, but their guests are on, like, Zoom or whatever. So I just thought maybe we would tell people where we are. We're obviously not in a podcast studio. Um, but how we're doing this at this particular time. And how responsible we are or aren't being, they get to judge. I think we're being responsible enough and taking it very seriously. But we're not going to the podcast studio, but the last few weeks, both for this podcast and in preparing for the virtual festival, have been lucky enough. Our staff is working from home. They have been since middle of March. I was going to pick March 13th, and I don't know if that's true. I feel like that's a good date to pick. Great. So they've been doing that since March 13th. Because we do have an office that is about 10 minutes from my house, I have regularly been coming here 
usually alone for like three to four days out of the week for three to four hours because I'm quarantined with my fiance at home. And the only reason we're doing as well as we are is that I get one of us gets to go away from the other one for three to four hours a day. And there is some semblance of life. I do appreciate that sometimes Evan comes up to the office. I appreciate that, you know, it's still being used every day and you guys can go back and forth. Yes. And so, and you've been working from home, but because you were also quarantined alone and early on in doing all of this and who we are, we basically are treating each other like quarantine roommates. Yes. And so yep. your exposure is to me and my responsibility of that exposure is to you. And so sometimes I get you stuff at the grocery store to limit said exposure. Or make me things that we'll talk about in a minute. Yep. I make you things. I bring you alcohol, that kind of thing. Because you being quarantined alone, like I get to be your like somewhat roommate. And we're taking it very seriously. And that's it. So usually one day a week, we work together at the office for a few hours at the other ends of a six foot conference table. And then one day a week, we sometimes work at your house to look at a board of cards to organize programming. But so podcast days, Mondays is the day we work together at the office, but in continuing social distancing (laughs) together, we are currently in two separate offices, FaceTiming one another. I know, which is also really funny because these walls are super thin in our office. So we are in different rooms, both doors shut with headphones on, which is why I think that I can't hear you through the wall because every once in a while when we do a Zoom call and we're in separate places, I can still hear you repeating things. So I feel like this is the best case scenario because I also can't record from home right now because there's construction in my neighborhood and you just never know when. Never know when it's going to happen. And this is like the safest sound space. So if anybody was wondering how we are both podcasting and putting on a virtual festival, the rest of the team we haven't seen since March 13th, which is very weird. I mean, we've seen them on Zoom. Well, I'm looking at a calendar set to March because nothing's changed in here. And March 13th, was it? Or was it March 20th? It doesn't really matter. I think it was the 13th. I think it was the 13th. That was the last day we were all together. Yep. And so like, we haven't seen them except on Zooms, but we have seen each other once or twice a week in social distancing acceptable ways. And so I'm, again, right now, just watching you on FaceTime, even though you're in another room within the same space as me. You still miss me though, don't you? I do. I do. Thank you. But moving on for virtual festival. So as I said, we had announced Scrubs and Cougar Town last week. We announced that uh, we have released registration. So reminder to everybody to go to our website. There's an easy link to the Eventbrite from there. It's also on all of our social media. It's pinned to the top of Twitter. Free, easy to register. Go do it. Bonus points if you subscribe to the YouTube channel because that is where we will be streaming and it's good to have that community kind of built up. But this week, by the time this comes out, we will have announced some additional programming. A small handful of the many things. Yep. In there is, uh, so we're still reminding in terms of the programming sort of shaping up, we're doing series specific things as well as topical panels. We're doing some content screenings. We'll have very few full screenings, if any, actually, but we'll drive people to watch things that are kind of airing now as we kind of fall between weeks two and three or three and four of certain series. But we are going to announce that 
Nancy Drew, which we had confirmed for last year's festival, will continue on as a panel looking at kind of the fandom of a 90-year-old character. And we're confirming who those panelists are, but we'll still be touching on Nancy Drew. We also are going to do a conversation about New Amsterdam, the NBC hit series, New Amsterdam, and talking about their approach to real life representation, real life issues in the medical community, obviously even more important now with COVID, but they've gone to great lengths in working with the American Heart Association and various things for storylines. So we're going to be talking about that with cast members and producers and writers and... Mm -hmm. Which, and I think what's so cool about New Amsterdam is how they have really taken real life things and real life issues and put them into the show in these really great ways. They did have a pandemic like, well, it wasn't pandemic, but they had a, it was pandemic. They, they didn't air it. And so they're not going to be really taught, focused so much on that one. I'm sure it'll come up, but I feel like they're just kind of ahead of the curve from some of these other shows on how they're taking these real life issues and putting them into episodes. And they also did, I hope they talk about it, like, I think they weren't alone in this, but a lot of medical shows donated the medical equipment that they had on, like, the masks and gloves and things that they had on set, because obviously they used that when there was such a shortage, which I thought was very cool in ways that TV helps real life and reflects real life and things like that. Um, We are also going to be getting the first look at the new season of The Bold Type, as big as big fans here in the office, I just I really love that show. And we've got the showrunner and all three of the lead actresses that will be talking to us during the festival. And then some of our topical panels that we're announcing this week are, uh, we had a panel we were working on and we were so excited. And I'm literally, I think it might be the thing I'm the most excited about having transitioned to virtual is we were working a few years ago and last week's episode, not last week's episode, two weeks ago's episode, the Presidents of TV panel that we released that came out a couple of years ago. We wanted to do a new version of that. And we wanted to focus specifically on female presidents, but we also wanted to really have a spectrum of platforms, studios, networks, cable, broadcast kind of a thing. A very specific type of presidents, not just sort of the channel. Um, And we started working on this for the physical festival and had made great strides and have now transitioned it to virtual. It's going to be called Channel Changers, a conversation with TV's presidents. But it's Sarah Aubrey from the what will have been be the newly launched HBO Max. HBO Max launches the week before the festival. So Sarah Aubrey, Lisa Katz, and Tracy Pacosta, the presidents of NBC, Perlina Igabakwe, I hope that is how she says her last name, who's the president of Universal Cable Productions, so a studio. And we're working on a couple of more, but that sort of does a large spectrum of broadcast, streaming, studios. We hope to get a cable representation as well. But I'm excited for that to be the new iteration of our president's panel. And then, of course, we've got a panel with the ACLU, which is a rollover from a partnership we had last year that is about the election and the census and voter suppression and all the things that are still issues today. And a really great panel that's also a growing evolution of our relationship with Hollywood Health and Society, Norman Lear's organization on mental health and addiction. And then lastly, 
we have new two new advisory board members this year, Gloria Kelder and Kelly and Tanya Siracho, and we talked to them about what type of panel they wanted to do and wanted to sort of spotlight Latinx storytelling. And so we're doing a celebrating of authentic stories, which felt really good. You know, there's a lot of issues to talk about in a lot of space when it comes to representation, but celebrating the authentic stories that are being told felt like the right thing to do currently right now. And so we've got Gloria and Tanya on that panel, as well as Stephen Cannells from Pose and Elena Pena from Diary of a Future President on Disney+. Plus. So we're excited. All shows that we love, all people we love and all shows we love, which always makes the best panel. Yes. And guys, programming three weeks from now. What are you waiting for? Register. I know. And so much more to come. So much, so much more, more to come that I feel like we will be able to announce, you know, maybe even by Friday, maybe by the time this comes out, maybe yeah. even more. And then the hope is the week after that, the next week, week and a half after that. So a week and a half, two weeks before the festival, we'll release a schedule and kind of a watch list and hopefully a grocery list because we all want to eat and drink along with one another. Us want to eat and drink? I don't understand. Which, I don't that makes understand. No sense. I mean, it's a great, great transition to our quarantine fooding and making my way through Austin takeout. That was Austin a great takeout. segue. That was awesome. Thanks. Thanks. I mean, my Austin takeout really did start on Friday when I brought you your first chicken sandwich in a very long time. Fried chicken oh, it sandwich. It was so long. It had been so long. And you kept asking what I wanted. And I was trying to be very open to whatever you were craving as well. But all I really wanted was a fried chicken sandwich. Yep. And you brought me one from Lucy's Fried Chicken, which was next door to our old office. So we ate up on a regular basis. Funny enough, had never actually had the chicken sandwich from there. Which is shocking. I know. I don't really understand why. I mean, they have so many great things and so many great sides and a vegetable plate that we love very much, oddly, over fried chicken. Who would choose that? But we do really love it. So you brought me that and it was delicious and I'm still thinking about it. But I'm also thinking about what fried chicken sandwich can you bring me this Friday? Which I could do because I've had at least two fried chicken sandwiches besides that one over quarantine that you have not had. We also had fried green tomatoes, the vegetable plate, and some french fries, obviously. <laughs> Duh. But it was nice to – I hadn't supported Lucy's during this time, and, and I do see the Austin takeout. Besides being fun and entertainment is how many places can you support. And so picking Lucy's felt really important, if you want to use that word, if I want to use that word. And then – that's usually where you get your takeout from is when I'm bringing it. So then you're just living vicariously through my other food escapades. So on Saturday, we did do a Chinese takeout from Old Thousand, which is kind of, they hashtag themselves dope Chinese. It was a little too spicy for me personally, but it was very good. It was very, very good. But the the other part there was my favorite bar that obviously can't really be open right now, Nickel City, one of my favorite bars, is right across the street. And they had a pop-up daiquiri shop. And so we got frozen Irish coffees. Oh, well, now that sounds wonderful. Delicious. So that was a big win of that. But aside from all of that, the big quarantine food moment of the weekend was I made my first loaf of bread which seems to be, I don't know why that's taking off at this particular moment. I don't know why it's a trend right now, but I love that you participated in it. And uh, I've also, I mean, you're an excellent cook. You uh, thank you. cook on a regular basis. You've made me many wonderful things, but I've never really thought of you as a bread maker. 
mainly because you've never made bread before. I was going to say the last time I feel like I made bread was like in junior high when bread makers were a thing, like where you put everything in a machine and you, I don't know, picked what type of bread it was and you came back later and it had made bread. Like we had one of those growing up. Yeah, we did too. Yeah. It was also a trend at one point was like buy a bread maker. And so that was the last time I think I've made bread. I've baked other things, but not bread and not usually savory things. It's like cupcakes and whatnot. It was very easy. I got the recipe by watching our friend C.K. Chen, who is also a restaurateur in Austin. He owns, runs, started Swiss Attic and Wu Chow. Wu Chow we love. Wu Chow is currently closed. Otherwise, we would have talked about them already. I know. Yeah, I'm waiting for it to reopen. But C.K. has been doing a lot of food segments and like making ice cream and making butter. And he made this bread. And I had been seeing so many people making bread I guess they're all doing sourdough because they have these starters that my mom is like, has told me is like having a child that you have to take care of because you have to feed it and tend to it every day. And so like, I didn't want to do that. That sounded hard. And CK did this bread and I asked him what the recipe was and he sent me a link to Mark Bittman's no need bread. And it was the easiest thing I've ever done. Like truly ever like four cups of flour, water, salt and yeast mixed up, cover it up for 18 hours, come back to it, fold it over twice, leave it alone for two hours, come back to it, put it in a, in the oven, in a pot for like 30 minutes, maybe an hour. And then it was done. I'm not getting ahead of myself, but this feels like something that I could do. I think you could do this. I have some yeast. I can't, I can give you yeast. Okay, great. Because, you know, I have zero of those things that you need to actually make the bread. Right. But I feel like it's something I could do. It would not turn out pretty. But, you know, it may turn out good. Edible. I think it would turn out edible. I didn't think that mine was very pretty. I had put corn meal on it because they said to dust it. And I, I think that was wrong. Um, but it was that perfect. They say that, like, a good bread is a crunchy crust. Like, a real crispy, crunchy crust. And, like, chewy like riddled with kind of like holes inside of it, like air, there's air in it. And it did that. And then I gave you, I gave you a slice. I ate a slice yesterday with just heated up and butter and it was delicious. And then because you had told me you had eaten some with avocado, I did a grocery Mm -hmm. order last night, got avocado. So this morning for breakfast, toasted the other piece, butter, fresh avocado on it. It was so good. It's so, it was good. so good. I was like, does she have more? Can she go ahead and make some I more? I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be making more. I really made it because Evan needed it for sandwiches and I don't really make sandwiches. And then I realized he hadn't had any and half the loaf was gone this morning. <laughs> <laughs> that feels that feels right. Um, I'm also thinking right now, maybe we should be hosting a food podcast as opposed maybe. to a TV podcast. Maybe. Um, but whatever, we'll get into TV in just a second. Whatever, and whatever. I did the only really update on, I guess, takeout and Austin restaurants for me is the past couple weeks I've been hosting driveway drinks, if you will, where one to two friends will come over and we will sit at opposite ends of my driveway in lawn chairs and have cocktails and hang out and talk. And then last week started on Monday with my friend Sarah and Henry coming over and they brought me Flower Child, which is a restaurant downtown Austin. It's a very healthy restaurant that I love a lot. And so they brought that. So we sat outside and ate dinner and then had drinks. 
and hang out. And I was like, well, this is lovely. It's just, I mean, I feel like it's part of, we are talking about this earlier. It's been at least 60 degrees in the morning in Austin, which is kind of unheard of. So even in the evening, it hits like 80, you know, then gets down to the 70s. So it's actually really nice to sit outside in a way that may not hold the summer. But right now I'm like, I can sit outside and eat this and have drinks and hang out with my friends. So, you know, we can't go to a patio, but this is almost as good. Maybe even better because you just get to hang out and then you don't have to go anywhere. I mean, technically in Austin, you could go to a patio. I just disagree with it. That's my own tr- for myself. I, you know what? I am with you. Like, I don't think that I am. I'm not ready, especially. I mean, I feel like, yes, wearing masks everywhere you go and that I feel like should include restaurants. And I don't know how you eat with a mask on. So I understand that that's not something people can really do. In my Saturday and Sunday pickups, that was the big difference in the last week in Austin as things have started to open up a little bit. And going to pick up the food and seeing people eating, even six feet apart in their groups that they came in, which I'm going to tell myself that they're quarantining together, although I don't think some of the groups I saw really were. I'm not there yet. I don't want to say it's not okay, but it was the thing that was different this week than last time and something that when seeing it, I could tell I was not comfortable doing. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I feel this to me, especially when it's so nice outside, why not still just go pick things up and bring them home and sit outside and eat on the driveway? I also have a very friendly neighborhood, so I like sitting outside because people go for walks with their dogs around that time. And so waving and talking to people is also very social. It's also very, very you. <laughs> in a more than six feet apart way, you're right. Me just sitting outside on my driveway and talking to neighbors is actually a delightful evening for me. So I can see you being 80 years old and still doing that. So. Oh my gosh, I'm totally going to be doing that when I'm 80, yes. 100%. Yes. Uh, so bringing TV back into it, we'll do a little quarantine watch update before talking about the panel this week. So you are still doing some rewatches. I finished Friday Night Lights. Congratulations. I know. It felt like a really big win. I definitely cried many times in the final three episodes. It's funny what you remember, because as things were starting to happen, I was like, oh, oh, I know what's coming. Oh, this is like heartbreaking. But I didn't, I think I told you this. I don't remember if I talked about it or not, but the end of season four, I honestly couldn't remember whether or not they won the game. Like it was getting to the end. I'm not going to say for people who haven't watched, but like, I honestly like, felt myself so tense during the last game because I couldn't remember what happened. This one, I do remember what happens on the finale, but it was still just as good. Like the way, cause I couldn't remember how they wrapped up all the different storylines. And I'm saying Kyle Chandler and Michael B. Jordan, their scenes and their moments together. I mean, I knew Michael B. Jordan had been in the wire. I don't know if he had really done anything else significant between those two, I mean, that kid, he's not a child anymore. He wasn't a child when he did Friday Lights, but he is so good. He, like, these small moments, I just, like, I I understand why the world fell in love with him. And then the way he and Kyle Chandler play off of each other, it's just, it's pretty phenomenal. So I cried a lot towards the end, but it didn't disappoint. It held strong. And then you started. Yeah. And finishing that, I was like, okay, so I'm still watching Buffy, but Buffy's going to take me a hundred years to rewatch. So I was like, I need something else to supplement that. And I decided to start rewatching Orphan Black. It's a very interesting choice. I'm here for it. So Tatiana Maslany is going to be in the new Perry Mason, which HBO is going to be airing this summer. And so she's been 
you know, a little bit, not really in the headlines, but coming across some of my feeds lately. And I was like, I loved Orphan Black so much, but it's one of those shows that I only watched once. And I just remember leftovers. I know. I just remember loving deeply, but I don't remember all the ins and outs. I remember just how phenomenal she was and how phenomenal the scenes are when she is playing all the different clones. And my favorite scenes are when she is playing a clone pretending to be a different clone. Like it's just, she's just so phenomenal. And the show was so good. So I'm three episodes in and already I'm like, yes, this was, this was the right decision. I remember that pilot being especially good. Oh my gosh. The first five minutes is shocking. And so even knowing what's coming, it's really nice to rewatch because they're already laying Easter eggs for what doesn't come until seasons four and five. That was my awesome. favorite thing about The Leftovers is I didn't even, you obviously don't know what those Easter eggs are when you're watching it the first time. So you don't really remember them later because so many of them are so subtle. And it's so impressive that they had that kind of long-term plan and goal for things that they were doing it that early. I was trying to think, I'm not currently in a re I did somewhat start Shit's Creek again because you've watched it so many times that I think I've seen three or four episodes like kind of as I was going to bed but I'm not deep into it but I did <laughs> this is like a random list that we don't have to talk a lot about but I so I've been waking up between 5 30 and 6 30 in the morning because I don't so know really. that's it's my new quarantine weirdness I just wake up and so I wander downstairs let the dog out get a cup of coffee sit down on the couch with my computer and put something on. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to any of the things that I list, but that I am doing other things. I'm not giving it my full attention and I kind of want it to roll into the next thing. And so I sometimes, you know, give it some pieces of full attention, but it's about two hours of watching two episodes or four episodes if it's a half hour of things. So I'm kind of blazing through a few things. I went through Trying, which is a Apple show about a British couple trying to get pregnant and then trying to adopt. It's very cute. Okay. Um, the main guy in it took me a minute. He was in Roadies. And I remember thinking he was really cute there. There's some good chemistry. It's, it's delightful. It's a very easy watch. I have now finished Never Have I Ever, which I wasn't going to finish, but I got almost bullied on a conference call with you and Jen and it was not bullied by me just so we know it's not bullied yes, by me I had watched half of an episode which I don't normally do but I just didn't feel like it was going to be my vibe and I bailed and then everybody told me that I was wrong and I got bullied into rewatching it I will say I did enjoy it it is still not fully my show but I do get it I don't really need the John McEnroe narrator as much as he is there aside from that I was totally into it finished it I also watched, I've started Dead to Me season two. They're delightful. That's what I keep hearing. I need to go back and watch season one. I don't think, like, it's, again, no offense. I don't think I'm liking it as much as I like season one, but I like them enough that it really doesn't matter. And they, they bring back James Marsden. I won't tell you how, because if you've watched season one, it will seem confusing. But Fair. he is very fun to watch and delightful to look at. And then we watched on HBO the Natalie Wood documentary, which is hmm. fine. It's fine. And Bad Education. <laughs> I love your scoring system. It's fine. It's it, fine. You watched it. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. And Bad Education, which is Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney, it is great. And it sparks okay. a lot of conversation. And I just, I really like them. And it is very interesting. And it does, they do a very good job of showing particularly Hugh Jackman's character, 
I mean, it's about embezzling money from a school. You know that going in. He is one that does it, but it does a very good job of also showing he is a good person who cares about students and remembers them and was very good at his job and did a very bad thing. And I think it's interesting to not just make him a villain, probably the writing and Hugh Jackman himself, but it's just a very delicate balance that they pull off very well. Um, So I can highly recommend that. And then we can end on that we both finished Normal People. Yes, I love that you finished it before I finished it, which is pretty typical. As a background, so Normal People's on Hulu. I started hearing about it a week ago Friday. So when this comes out, it will have come out two weeks ago. But I can remember hearing about it a little bit on social last weekend and being like, ah, maybe. And then you talked about it. And so I watched the pilot during the week last week in one of my morning sessions. And then I quickly was like, oh, I'm not going to watch this show in a morning session. I want to pay more attention because it is subtle and quiet. And everybody said it was so sad and emotional. And so then I had seen the pilot, but this Saturday and Sunday, I watched the rest of it. So what what did you think? I liked it a lot. I will say that I'm with you. A lot of people talked about crying a lot. And surprisingly, I didn't cry a lot. Yep, me either. I don't think I cried at all. I did tear up. I don't think I cried. I didn't cry, cry. But I teared up, weirdly enough. I don't think this is a spoiler, but if you've watched it, you may, you will understand. When it was still in the high school episodes and when mm-hmm. his mom gives him a hard time about how he's treating uh, her yeah. in the car and gets out of the car. And then the next time she sees Marianne, she hugs her and yeah. asks how she's doing. I got chills just now. Like I got emotional in that scene, but I didn't cry at any other point. I, his mom is amazing. I loved her so much in a way that I was like, it's very much about these two people, but you know, some side characters, his mom was definitely, if you're not looking at the two main characters, my favorite character. I agree. I like the way she balanced. I also, I didn't expect, I mean, I think it's like episode three where they leave high school. Like it's a very interesting time. Yeah. I think they're in high school for the first three. Yeah, and there's 12 episodes, but the amount of time, I don't think I even have a totally clear aspect of how much time it's covering because they jump in different ways. And a lot of times it starts an episode with like six weeks earlier, and I'm like six weeks earlier than what? But those first couple of episodes, I was like, okay, I think that we like him, but I don't like what's happening. Do we know that we don't like what's happening? Like how it, like, and so the mom kind of, burst that bubble. Anyway, not going super detailed into all of it. I did think it was beautiful and quiet and almost like a foreign independent film in a lot of ways. It's just this beautiful emotional journey that, again, I feel like it's such a simple story with very complex people and the emotions that they go through and the things they go through. And I mean, kind of as you were saying, the pacing of it is phenomenal in It's only 12 half-hour episodes. One of those episodes is only 22 minutes. But I felt the, I felt the full journey of it. Like it didn't feel, it felt like the perfect length and that the time passage of it made complete sense. And I didn't feel like, oh, I missed two years of their lives. What were they doing for those two Mm -hmm. years? Like it felt specifically paced that I was with them this entire journey and was with them over these five or six years that it probably took place over. I also thought it was very interesting how they aged. I mean, they didn't really age them, but how when they're in high school, I mean, they're 
obviously look a little bit older than high school, but they felt very high school. And by the end of it, I'm like, they feel that many years older. And I was like, this is a very cool acting. I think look into acting and how they made themselves feel so high school and felt themselves maturing and were able to portray that, the maturing part of it. It was also the clothes. The clothes played a big part in it. Yeah, you saw their style true. change a lot. The last thing I'll say about it that I thought was very cool is I looked up the creator, showrunner, Alice Birch, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she comes from the Succession camp. She was a story oh. editor and writer for Succession. Yep. Nice. Big fans. Big fans. So anyway, there's our quarantine watching. We're obviously yep. watching a lot. But going into today's episode, which is coming from 2015, season four of our favorites, and it's called To Adapt is to Evolve, which will probably make a cute play in the title, but we are all adapting and hopefully evolving during this time and not devolving (laughs) in a lot of ways. But um, as we all adapt, this is a conversation between Noah Hawley, Graham Yost, and Brian Fuller. We obviously have already told you. Uh, how much we know about Graham and how we got to meet him. I see that you posed the question of how did we meet Noah? Do you know? How did we meet Noah? Question mark. I mean, I feel like it was via Twitter and then we met him. Okay. You're already wrong. I don't remember. Nope. Then I have zero idea how we met Noah. These people have been in our lives for so long. How can I remember how we met all of them? Yeah, that's very true. The reason that you don't remember this one, it's not, it's kind of a trick question, is it was me and it was way before the festival, was that when I worked on the Fox Lot, which is where you and I met. True story. Our development office with Betty Thomas was shared a wall, like half the bungalow, with Barry Josephson's company. And Barry Josephson was producing Bones. And Noah Hawley was a writer for Bones. And so our director of development, whose name is Ben Spector, who is now Eva Longoria's director of development. That may be the wrong title. And if so, I'm sorry, Ben. Became friends with Noah. And so Noah would come over and like, they'd go to lunch. And that was like the first time I was like, oh, he's a writer on Bones. And I knew of him at that point. So then the next thing that happened when we were establishing the festival was Noah was producing, creating My Generation which was filmed in Austin. It was a very Austin-centric show. Noah was living in Austin. And so Ben was like, you should reach out to Noah. And so the very first festival, we had Noah Holly and Kyle Killen both. Kyle, we did meet on Twitter. Okay, so that great. might be what you're thinking. They both lived in Austin and we got them to be panelists. And at that point, Fargo might have been an idea of Noah's, but at that point he had done My Generation and the other show that I cannot remember the name of Uh, right now. The Unusuals? Nope. The Unusuals. I think you're right. The Unusuals. That had one of the Avengers in it. I'm terrible. My brain's short-circuited. That's okay. That's a movie. We don't pay attention to movies. Yeah, we don't pay attention to him. He he shoots arrows. Whatever. Um, (laughs) You know who I'm talking about, right? So good. Jeremy Renner? Yes, thank you. Yes, good job. No, I don't know where that came from. Don't know where that piece of information came from, but there you it's go. It's a great game. So anyway, he had done those two. And so while we asked him to be on the advisory board, and he was when he was that, and then he became, you know, the creator of Fargo, and then Legion, and then became who we all know as Noah Holly today. But in this panel, this all came about because Noah wanted to either wanted to do something with Brian Fuller and 
we didn't want him to, for whatever reason, we were doing a Hannibal panel and somehow he wanted to moderate the Q and A for Hannibal. And normally we would let that sort of thing happen. So I don't know why we didn't or what conflict there was, but we created this panel instead for them to have some conversations. Because one of our favorite things to do is put together random people and think, what do these people have in common? What can they talk about? And then we come up with it. And then we had Graham, who at that point would agree to be on anything. So we're like, great, we'll put him on this as well. I mean, Noah was, season one of Fargo was airing. So Noah had adapted that. So the point of this, if it's not clear, I think backing up a minute, the, the, the point of this panel, besides having a conversation with these three creators who are very talented, is about adaption of things. So Noah had adapted Fargo from the movie. Season was airing and we were actually screening. Do you remember if it was episode eight or nine that we screened? I believe it was nine because I believe it was the penultimate. I, I, that's what I said too. That's what I thought too. So that was already, I mean, getting a lot of great buzz and people love, I mean, people love Fargo in general, but season one, people really responded well to. Graham had obviously adapted Justified. Which the book, just so people know, because I don't think it's that clear, is Justified is based on a Elmore Leonard short story called Fire in the Hole, which I reread recently because we were going to do the Justified Writers panel. Um, and I have a book signed by Graham, but it is a short story adaption. And then Brian had done Mockingbird Lane, uh, which is an adaptation from The Munsters, uh, which was, I think, supposed to be a series, but then ended up just being a made for TV movie. And then he did Hannibal, which is based on the Hannibal Lecter character. People know who that is. And then he was getting ready to do American Gods. So he kind of had these these three staples that we were drawing from, which was very cool. Yeah. Part of the reason we chose to release this now is obviously they're all still very prominent in television. And as we said, Graham and Justified and things like that were going to be a part of this year's festival. So that was how this panel came together. And it was it is great. One of the things that I think you have the strongest memory about was something that followed this panel at the festival. Oh, which was so cool. So my best friend from growing up, Sarah, who is still my best friend, she is obsessed with American Gods, like had read that book more times than I can count and went to the panel really wanting to hear him talk about American Gods, which I mean, this was two years before season one came out. So I'm sure he couldn't say much which you'll hear shortly. But um, but so she went up to him afterwards and was like, American Gods, I'm so excited. And he pulled out his phone and started showing her basically art mock-ups of production stills. Concept art. Yes, of like what it was going to look like and showed her, I mean, a, a solid handful, if not more, of what the show was going to look like. And she just, I mean, she still talks about that to this day, of like how cool he was and how kind he was to her. And then just immediately was like, he was so excited to share something too. Like here she was, this fangirl who was fanning over him just at the possibility of him doing this show. And he got excited by her excitement. And it was just this like beautiful, lovely moment that goes down. And that's, that's the cool thing I think too, about what happens at the festival that we don't know exactly how to recreate virtually because it happens such in the physical sense, but these magic moments where I feel like the panelists they're such TV fans too, and they want to share their fandom and their excitement for their shows. So as soon as someone, you know, starts in on that, they they immediately jump on, and you can have these magic moments that just happen so organically 
throughout the whole festival. So that's one thing that I'm sad will not be happening this year. But at the same time, I think we're working on some other cool things that you can only do virtually. So, you know, there's balance. I totally agree. Uh, So with that, I hope you guys enjoy To Adapt is to Evolve with Graham Yost, Noah Hawley, and Brian Fuller. And it is moderated by James Hibbard of Entertainment Weekly. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming out uh, early-ish on a Saturday. Always difficult to get up and moving after a Friday night in Austin um, to have this uh, or have a great conversation about the process, joys, pitfalls of adaptation. Um, So I guess let's start with like a big hard question just just to just open. Um, What does a writer owe the original work when they take on uh, a process like this? Uh, for me, I was such a fetishist Mm -hmm. for Thomas Harris's novels that, um, I wanted to make sure that we had the kind of purple prose poetry of the books. And I wanted to mess with the relationships a little bit so we could see different aspects of the characters since it had been adapted several times before. And I didn't want to go back to the same territory. So... There was a line in one of the books that I unpacked and tried to craft a relationship between Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham that the audience hadn't seen before. So the there was merit in doing the show. Right, right. So 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 a part of it is the spirit of and tone of the original work more than the specifics. Of yeah, the we describe ourselves as mashup DJs. So we're taking the tracks from Red Dragon and spinning them with the uh, lyrics from Silence of the Lambs. And uh, so there's, it's a, it's, it's kind of a soup that we get to pick the alphabet out of as we choose. Right. And, uh, and Noah for, for Fargo. Uh, well, it was interesting for me because they said, we want you to adapt this movie without any of the characters or the story from the movie. So then, (laughs) So then what are you doing except sort of making a Coen Brothers movie, which is an interesting exercise, certainly. And I think that, that you know, you are trying to create something that gives you the same feel as the original work, but doesn't have any of the particular elements from it. So that's a sort of abstraction that, that I, allows me a lot of leeway to, to create stuff and to say, you know, to my corporate overlords, you know, well, what are you going to do? It's a Coen Brothers movie. I, I need a 10-minute parable sequence or, you know what I mean? Like, it, because you can't make a Coen Brothers movie by committee. Um, you know, it has to be a sort of singular vision for better or worse. And, and so I think that's the fun of it is to really stretch and, and look at the, their work as a whole and just sort of try to feel your way to it by instinct, you know, because there would be moments in that first year where it's like, well, I haven't seen a lot of fist fights in a Coen Brothers movie, so how should I shoot this fight sequence or how should I cut it? Or, you know, it's those moments where you're outside of, of the you know, material that you've seen um, from those filmmakers where then, you know, then you just have to trust your instincts for what is going to be the most interesting version. Right, and w- with, with you, you know, your project in particular, there's, there's a certain amount of... Um, a, a strong amount of oh well they shouldn't even do this you know which which, there which was? yeah yeah <laughs> with, a, with with a certain amount of you know oh you know there's no way it can possibly you know I don't think I've, I've oh we were bound to before. fail 
I mean, yeah. you know, and, and that's liberating on a certain front because you know, if you're going to be a car wreck, you might as well be an epic car wreck, you know. And 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 you know, but but once we started getting the cast that we that we were getting, and it's you know, it's an interesting exercise because it's one thing on the page to say, okay, well, you've kind of got the voice, but then you know, you also have to make the film, you know, and in, in an emulation of two of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And so how do you translate that? And a lot of it was about tone and, and uh, you know, the network had said to me when we were prepping and I was showing them actors that I liked, they kept saying, you know, it's not a comedy, right? And so I actually went into them and I had made this bar graph because I thought that was funny of like, you know, comedy in the Coen brothers movies with, you know, raising Arizona on one side and, and Miller's crossing on the other. And, and uh, I just said, look, it's like if I got, Javier Bardem to be in the show and everyone's high-fiving in the halls, right? And then I gave him that haircut. And, and you know, and you'd all be horrified, but, and the Coens gave him that haircut and they laughed at his face for like 30 minutes. <laughs> but there's nothing funny about it in the movie. It's this really unsettling and kind of creepy detail. So I think the word comedy, it's, you know, just because something feels funny or feels like it's funny to me doesn't mean my intention is for it to be comic, you know? And Graham, you, you turned a short story into six seasons of television, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, we really drew that story out. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the story was really, our pilot really was a straight adaptation. You know, we just took that, that novella, Fire in the Hole, and turned that into the pilot. Um, the problem then became, okay, what do we do for the second episode? And then for the next, you know, 77 episodes. So, um it's uh, these guys just said you're you're i mean part of it is well what does the network want i mean what is their do they want elmore leonard you know is that what they bought or they're they're just interested in these characters and so when we went on the pitch trail um the reason we we chose fx and and they chose us is because john landgraf uh, was a big elmore leonard fan so he supported trying to do a story that was really in keeping with elmore's writings and then, yeah, we had to make up our own stories. Um, and a lot of it, we had a huge wealth of written material that we could not steal from um, his books, you know. And uh, th there were times in the first season where he would say, uh, that shootout, that's from Pronto, you know. And it's like, is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Um, and, uh, and there were times where we, we actually went and got made a deal. Hey, we want to take this central thing from writing the rap. Can we do that? And we made a little side deal. Um, but it was really, yeah, it's, it's a world that he created. It's an approach to character and story and, we just, and, and, and dialogue. And we just had to try and stay true to that as best we could for six years. Yeah, and uh, and both with uh, with you and Noah, sort of a case of you know getting the rights to one particular p title, but then sort of adapting from a, uh, a, a creative artist that their their whole body of, of work to some extent in terms of the spirit and the tone and that sort of thing. I, I'm not supposed to say that out loud because we <laughs> don't own the rights to to all the other stuff. But but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's uh, you know part of the fun of it is is you know, obviously there are these elements for, for fans where you want to lay things in that, that homages to other moments that, that, that are meaningful. But, <clears throat> you know, I think one of the genius things about Brian's show is, is the way that, that, that you took 
the way things happened in the movies and you reversed them, you turned them on their head. You know, you, you had Will Graham in a cell and Hannibal Lecter coming to visit him. And it's that moment where you realize that you're doing what the movie did. You're just doing it backwards or differently. That, that is so exciting, I think. So, you know, at the end of the first year, I'm going to spoil things for people if they haven't seen it, but you know, we do this, this one year jump and we, um, you know, and we make uh, Alison Tolman's character pregnant. So suddenly it kind of is the movie. So then people have these expectations, even if they don't realize they have these expectations, that we, when we send her out in the final moment, she's going to do what Marge did and end up at that cabin. And, and then when we don't do that, um, it's, it's surprising because, you know, you've created this expectation um, and, laid, and laid that groundwork, I think. And that was my goal was always to make something unpredictable that felt inevitable in the end. Right. And it seems like the more recent that another filmed worked work based on that story has been out there and how fresh that is in the viewers' minds, the more it sort of benefits you to, to play with that and, and to change it around and to, to go further away from whatever it is that you're adapting, I would think. Absolutely. I think the, you know, one of the things with Hannibal is that there, there's been so many adaptations and we've seen so many films about the character that we got to put an orange cone up essentially and just steer around some of those things. So when we entered that territory, we had to enter it with a different alchemy of character. And, uh, that's been the most fun, satisfying thing about Hannibal is just shifting the characters from an origin point and then seeing how, wild the tail will whip the further away we get from that origin right right and um and uh you know another thing i was, I was wondering about was uh what, what's sort of like the biggest mistake that uh that writers tend to make when they're procrastination procrastination <laughs> that's the biggest mistake we all tend to make right yes. but uh but but in terms of i mean when you see other adaptations out there or, or whatnot that you you see that you know what's the sort of what's sort of the biggest pitfall that people tend to fall into when approaching this approaching adapting something um i think if you're if you're staying true to the dna of characters you can take liberties with the characters if you if you change something fundamental about a character like if i made hannibal a veterinarian <laughs> instead of a cannibal psychiatrist that's an affront to the material so i think there's 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 a a little wiggle room to enhance because you're telling a story in a much longer format than than what was anticipated for the origin material so we're 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 at 39 episodes now of so you know roughly 35 hours of material where there's only been two hours per story in the past and uh it allows you to sow the your own seeds and Noah and graham you have a thought on that um, well, yeah, I think you, I think the only reason to, to adapt anything is, um, you know, certainly something that's, that's older or, you know, something like Brian and I did where there's so much material already is if you have something new to say about it, I think. And, and what I, I find interesting is, you know, no one really wants to see the firm adapted in a true to, you know, true to format thriller sequence what what we want to see is 
I think what's most exciting is when you give that material to someone who really has their own voice and their vision and you say, you know, make this your own um, and while still being true to the material. I think that those boundaries, you know, having to create within those boundaries of, well, we, are, we know what the world is and the tone is and everything. I think that's a really exciting exercise for, for a writer rather than, than the sort of Marvel philosophy of you can't break any of the mythology. You can't create anything new. It just has to stay within the, the framework of the characters. Otherwise, the, the nerds will get angry. Right. <laughs> well, it does become uh, you know, your offspring in a way because it's your DNA and the DNA of whether you know, of whatever source material it is. You have to have a well balanced baby, otherwise you, we're not able to do our jobs as writers, which is to communicate our worldview. It is really interesting, though, to to watch because, you know, you have a show like uh, like Game of Thrones where every deviation from the original source material is met with a degree of outrage. And then you have your uh, show where every deviation from the source material is met with, oh, that's cool. Look what they did with that. You know, it's like it's like you have this sort of, you know, and uh, and uh, and with 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 Fargo as well, I assume. Yeah, well, again, I started with nothing from the original. So in some ways that was my strength. And I went you know, for three hours. And then I threw in a connection to the first year. So just when you thought that there was nothing connecting it to the movie, you know, and I think that those unexpected moments can be really exciting for people. But I think you see now with Game of Thrones, the audience is really excited that they're breaking from, you know, because it kind of sucks when you know exactly what's going to happen, you know, and you're just going to see how they're going to execute it. I think what's interesting is to do something different from the books. And I think, I mean, obviously I think that George double R Martin is sort of like, what should I do now? What, how should I finish this? So <laughs> it's nice of them to finish that for him. As long as they include lady Stoneheart. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, true fanboys. Um, Let's see. Uh, I was talking to Stephen Moffat who does Sherlock and he was saying that, uh, you know, I was talking about, about all the fan fiction that gets written about his shows, uh, his show, and 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 I was asking about that. And he was like, and um, and he and he said something really interesting. He was he was like, you know, I'm writing fan fiction as far, as far as I'm concerned, and it made me wonder whether it ever gets frustrating as an artist to feel like, you know, to some degree that you're echoing the voice of a popular artist rather than doing something that's strictly your own. Uh, original work. You know, it's a different, it's a different kind of job. Um, and Fred Golan's here. Fred was one of the writers on Justified um, for the full run. And one of the fun things for us was getting to write like Elmore Leonard. Uh, he has a very specific voice, approach to character and dialogue. Um, and just backing up to the other question, I don't know the mistakes that people make of adapting anybody's stuff, but there are certain mistakes that people have made adapting Elmore. There have only really been three really great Elmore films, and um, Karen Sisko didn't work as a TV show. And I think part of the problem with people adapting Elmore, and they've tried it something like 35 times, 35 adaptations of his books, is they just take the plot, and they don't realize that it's, his, it's the way the characters express themselves that is the real joy of his writing. And Scott Frank understood that when he adapted Out of Sight and Get Shorty, and, I, and 
Tarantino did with Jackie Brown. And so we tried to, def- tried to follow that. But anyway, so we've gotten to write like Elmore and it was fun for us. And one of the weird things is, um, you know, I'm sitting here at the end in a different position because you guys are still going, you're still doing this. And now we don't get to write like Elmore anymore. You know, that time has come and gone because if I was to write a script that sounded like Elmore, people would say, hey, you're just writing like Elmore now, you know, whereas we had license to do it for six years. And that was really, that was really fun. It's interesting as showrunners, you're, you know, you try to cultivate your own voice and adapting somebody's material. You're almost going back to a staff writer sensibility where you're trying to mimic somebody else's voice as well as tell your own story. So it is kind of a full circle feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm working on Thomas Harris's staff and I'm trying to emulate his voice. But yeah, but (laughs) either one. It's interesting, though, because there is a modern sensibility in the last 10 years or so, which is about interpretation and reinterpretation. You said the mashup, you know, idea, which is almost like nothing's sacred on on some level. And and I always felt, you know, even as I when I started as a as a as a fiction writer, you know, we're just involved in a dialogue as writers with the people who inspire us and and um you know, so when when we write, we're, it's always an amalgamation of every inspiration that we've had. And you're just sort of saying, well, this was an interesting book that you wrote. Here's what I think in this world. And, and so, I don't know, I find the Coens, there's, there's a very interesting organizing principle. You know, they have a, a very traditional morality on a certain level. You know, if you transgress, you will be punished. It's almost like a horror movie mentality. And you see it over and over again in, in you know, Blood Simple or Fargo or, or um, uh, No Country for Old Men. And, and, and yet within that framework, you know, you can play with a lot of different elements. And, and uh, um, you know, the only real rule that I you know, that I stick to is you, there's no melodrama. You can't, there's no room for melodrama in, in, in their work. And so you always have to play against emotion and, and play against, I mean, even play against comedy on some level, if you're working within the certain tonal, tonal framework of, of their more dramatic movies. So, you know, it's, it is interesting to, to think about what that voice is. And then of course, how you, you know, staff for that voice and, and, you know, because it's, especially when it's a 10 hour movie, as opposed to a, an ongoing series, you know, the second year is very different from the first year. So it's not that it's a different voice in the end. I think you feel the same thing that you feel at the end of the first year, but it's a different, you know, it's a different movie. So it's, it, you know, that's exciting again to sort of go, okay, well, we're reinventing it again now. Um, Let's see. And there's also the issue of often the original creator uh, being around to potentially have their own opinion or own thoughts or weigh in. Uh, you, know, um, you know, as, as we mentioned with uh, Game of Thrones. Um, now, last time I spoke to you, you had not heard from the mysterious Thomas Harris, which uh, has to be a little bit unnerving that the creator of Hannibal Lecter is out there just judging you <laughs> silently. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced he exists. <laughs> I, I, the only interaction I've had with him is through Martha De Laurentiis, so I'm assuming he's in a zipper mask and a ball gag in a steamer trunk at the foot of her bed. 
<laughs> what if he just like called you out of the blue one day and it was just like, you know, that scene you wrote last week just really pissed me off or something. Would that just like blow your mind if you just got some out of the blue call from? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I would be like, you exist. It's yeah. like God coming down and saying, yeah. it's like, you're, you're real. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, it's weird with him because I'm, I'm so fascinated by it because it's weird that somebody is so good at what they do and is so successful at what they do and does what they do so rarely in, in terms of publishing a book. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it, I feel like he may be out there writing a Clarice and Will Graham story because both of those characters were left hanging. And that's certainly where I would go in the series is try to figure out how to get those two characters together in a strange way. But in the novel, the last we saw Clarice, she was brainwashed and Hannibal Lecter's lover. Right. So I, I would actually be curious to read what happens next. Right. I mean, do you, do you, are you just speculating or is that some on some inside knowledge? No, that's, 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 oh, no, yeah, I'm speculating. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Based so on where sure we left. Breaking some huge news. Let's see. And uh, no? Uh, yeah, it has to be odd. You know, I saw, I was in New York uh, last week and I saw Joel and Ethan and, and um, it's, you know, I don't bring it up. We don't talk about, the, sh the show really, you know, it's, I think it must be odd for them when we premiered, you know, last year in New York and you saw all the billboards and I mean, far more marketing than was ever done for the original movie. Um, so yeah, you know, we just sort of, I see them, I sort of force myself in, in and just sort of just to say hi really and keep, keep things going. But, but I don't think they're, they exist in in a bubble, you know, and we want them in that bubble, this creative bubble that they're that they're in to do the movies that they do. And so, you know, they, they'll ask some questions, you know, about, you know, and I'll tell them, hey, you guys want a Peabody? And they're like, well, yeah, for all the hard work that we that we did. But but they're, um, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about on some level because. You know, it's one of the greatest thrills of my life was when they read that first script and they said very nice things to me about it. Uh, at the same time, I don't necessarily expect them to ever read another script or watch another episode because I think the downside outweighs the upside, which is like, what if it gets really bad? You know, like, let's leave it on a high note where it's like, they liked it, just go do it. And, and I think they're kind of amazed at this sort of phenomenon that's just kind of going on um, in their name on, on some level, so... I mean, on one hand, it's 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 good to like not have any uh, interference or, or, or in terms of your writing. But at the same time, uh, you must have moments when you're writing where you sort of have that. I wonder what they would think of that moment. Yeah, you, you know, you sort of have to put that stuff out of out of your head. I mean, there was certainly a moment last year when I met them for the first time. And, and um, you know, I said, well... I might like at some point to have a conversation about filmmaking with you just as I have to now turn this into a movie. And they looked horrified at the idea that, you know, because they don't like to talk about their work or, or any of it. And I, I respect that. Um, but it was just then up to me to go off and interpret it. And if I get it wrong, I get it wrong. But, but um, you know, I, I think what's great about them is that they they're not interested in the notes process or anything like that. I mean, you have a vision for something and you just go off and make it. And that's, you know, that's, that's, the, that's what you do. And Graham, you were blessed to have uh, Elmore, you know, helping advise and, and steer you a little bit uh, throughout the years on Justified. Yeah. He passed away during season, end of season four, was it? 
Fred. Yeah. And um, listen, the best review we ever got on the show was that he got a kick out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he, he was a great guy and he was a lot of fun to hang out with. He would give us no notes. We had a struggle over what hat Raylan would wear. That was, <laughs> that was the big thing. He, um, he was, you know, more interested in what was called the businessman Stetson. And that's kind of what Raylan ended up wearing at the end of the show. Um, but he, he had been a screenwriter in the sixties and seventies and hated getting notes. Mm. He just didn't like that job for that reason. And so he never gave us notes and he just, um, he just enjoyed the show and would talk it up. And that was great. Mm. Um, but you know, listen, the, our whole reason for being was him. I mean, we were all, we were doing a show, everyone involved, we were all pulling in that direction. I'm still wearing the silly bracelet that I got for the writers in the first season. They stopped wearing them after two weeks. They just showed that they had them and that I had given them and they were happy for that. And never, I'm still wearing mine and it says WWED, what would Elmore do? Wow. And uh, because he, you know, we had to keep true to that. Um, or we would be lost. That became our, our guiding, our guiding light, our, our pole star. Um, we, we were talking about fans, uh, being, uh, upset earlier. And, and I, I've, I'm sort of fascinated with the sort of rise of sort of fandom outrage and how it seems to get louder every year. And Brian, you, you and I were, were talking the other day about this, that, uh, that, uh, you know, it's, and all, you, you guys are, are fortunate in that, you know, all your shows have received tremendous positive fan support, but, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the sort of rise of, of fan outrage online, because it's, 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 it's often circles around uh, adaptations and sometimes more than other shows, because there's a certain emotional connection to the original work and, and, uh, and, and fans can feel pretty upset or violated if, if, you, if you sort of detour from that in a, in a certain way. I'm wondering if you all have had experiences with that and, and uh, what those have been like. Most of my experiences have been relatively positive and and we've done some radical departures Mm -hmm. with the homoeroticization of (laughs) these characters um that uh really the the most vitriol i experienced is when we killed off a character in season two who was an asian woman and i was a racist and a misogynist for doing that and i just thought "Eh." I guess if that's how you feel and you, you don't have any control over it. So, and there's also the psychology of that outrage and you get that adrenal rush of outrage where you're like, Hey, I am dignified in the way I feel because I feel it so strongly and I have to express it that there's, I'm fascinated with it because it reminds me of, you know, being in college and not being able to hear happy holiday or Merry Christmas because it should be happy holidays because what if I was Jewish, even though I was raised Catholic. But that's sort of like, it's just, there's a lot of um, adolescent hormonal imbalances that I think contribute to the rage um, and also the the social retardation of social media. <laughs> uh, the metaphor you used on the uh, the metaphor you used on the phone hasn't left my head and you you, you said uh, outrage is the is the uh, nitro in our war boy machines. Yes <laughs> yes 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 it is. Uh, well, you know, there's art and there's commerce, right? And and obviously, you know, if if we can call what we do art on on any level, 
you know, which is created by an artist, obviously, you know, you have to be true to, to your vision of the work. And, and so at a certain point, you know, for better or worse, um, what matters is that you get it right in your own mind. And, and, um, you know, obviously some people are going to like some choices better than others. Uh, you know, I know that, that we had, uh, um, you know, built this whole season around Alison Tolman's character. And then, you know, at, at the end of the day, was she the one who pulled the trigger? She, she wasn't. Um, but you know, what was important, I think, you know, she got to be chief. Do you know what I mean? Like it, she solved it. It was her whole thing. And then, you know, and then her husband had a journey that he was taking as well. Um, and, um, you know, but again, I sort of tricked you cause I set it up where you felt she went out and it was going to be her. And then, you know, if, if I did it right, you kind of forget that, that Gus was even there. And, you know, so I wanted there to be some surprise to it, but it pays off in the end. Um, everything that I set up paid off. Uh, and I think that's the hallmark of a good story and whether I made, you know, I mean, what I always, you can't say to the executives, but who give you notes, but, but a note, you know, is this is confusing or I see what you're going for. Um, and I don't think you achieved it. A note is not, I would do it differently. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm, it's my show and I made these choices and, and I certainly want people to go on the ride and feel what, what is intended for them to feel but I'm not always going to make the same choices that, that somebody else would make for, for these characters. So, um, you know, you just have to stand by that. Um, well, the, the fan reaction, the thing is, is that these three shows, we, we share a thing where we, we have a starting point and then we had to go our own way. And it's very different than if you're, if you're doing Game of Thrones or Fred's wife is on Outlander. And, you, you know, especially in the first season, you can't, deviate much or people are going to scream and frankly that's the reason that they bought the property they bought the property because they want those readers and so if you do deviate too much then you know why did you buy the property but um yeah we had a, a different relationship I, we would get some pushback in certain areas on certain seasons or storylines but for the most part people were engaged with our world more than they were devoted Elmore fans, they became fans of our show. It was we who were the devoted Elmore fans. Um, when I was interviewing uh, Joss Whedon last year, he said he was talking about um, uh, whether he would do uh, Firefly again or other, you know, reboot Firefly. And he said he didn't want to do it because it's very important that we should be creating new worlds, not just endlessly revisiting uh, old ones. And with the surge of, you know, uh, reboots and revivals that we're seeing now, I mean, do you think that there's some truth to that? I mean, even as, as you know, showrunners on adapted works. Absolutely. Um, I think that there is such a glut of uh, reboots and reimaginings, but when they're good, they're good and, and I don't care. And, and there is, I understand the sentimentality and I understand like, oh, it's familiar and yet they're doing something different. And that's kind of the best of both worlds because it's a gateway drug into a whole new story. Um, and, you know, after working on a show for three years, that's, you know, that is an application of my skill set interpreting somebody else's world. I do yearn to go back to creating something that's more signature to me, just because uh, 
there'll be people don't talk how I talk in Hannibal. It's all very purple and inflated and it's fun to do, but it is a sense of, of mimicry that, uh, um, I think can be confining at times. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't, you know, again, they said, hey, here's a painting of a city. Can you paint the same painting without any of these buildings in it? Like it's, you know, it's nothing that I'm doing is actually an adaptation of a Coen Brothers work on a certain level. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a, um, it's a tone of voice and it's a kind of sensibility, but, but, you know, you'll see the second year is a completely new story with, you know, which unfolds in a very different way and doesn't sort of follow the rules that the first season laid out. So, you know, I think for me, it was really this, it gave me this leeway to do things that I wouldn't have been able to get away with otherwise. You know what I mean? Like, if I'd gone to FX and said, yes, I need a 10 minute parable sequence in this original creation of mine, they might've said, well, that's not, you know, you can't do that. Or, you know, but the fact that I was able to, you know, point to just the sort of rampant creativity of the Cohen's world, it allowed me to then not copy them and do the things that they were doing, but to try to come up with my own version of those things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting, obviously, in in the context of this um, this thing that we do in adapting stories or or just coming up with shows. Obviously, the reason that they wanted to do it was because there was a brand there that would cut through the three hundred plus other shows that are out there and 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 get you those eyeballs. Um, and you know, we've all been on shows that get canceled after a year. I mean, it it sucks. You know, it's much better if you can know that you're going to be going for a while. And the great thing with FX is I knew that they weren't going to cancel my show, that the audience would watch all 10 hours, however little it was, and you'd be judged on, on the, the work that you did. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's good to do all of it, you know, and, and I like this idea of the anthology show because you are innovating every year. You're not sort of stuck in a, you know, 10 years uh, doing the same thing and then be, being defined by that. You know, I think we have the opportunity to kind of create a, a, a larger body of work, which is exciting. Yeah. In terms of the reboots, um, you know, it all depends what the, how they, how well they do it. And we were talking briefly before, I mean, when Mad Max Fury Road was announced, I thought, well, that's good because I love The Road Warrior. thought Thunderdome was okay. But little did I know that I was going to go to the theater and see the best movie ever made. <laughs> I didn't know. Except my nephew had called me and said, you have to go now. My son called me in the morning. What are you doing tonight? You have to go see this. So, um, and, but I've only seen it twice, so I can't really judge it. Um, but, you know, that one worked out. I listen to the soundtrack in my car, which is not a good idea. It's so dangerous. Way. I do the yeah, same thing. I'm so good. <laughs> it's a wonderful day. You, you look down. And I got a speeding ticket. You, you listening did? to the Mad Max Fury Road soundtrack. Yes. Yes. Yesterday. Uh, how, how, how fast? How fast? 85. <laughs> Were you using the nitro? Was that it? Were you using nitro? Was that it? Did you? Uh, it, was, it was actually a hybrid. So it was very... <laughs> I mean, the composer's name is Junkie XL, which tells you all you need to know. It just like uh, uh, turns every car into the war boy machine. <laughs> um, 
Let's see. Is is there uh, one work out there that you would be willing to publicly admit that you would love the opportunity to adapt into a show? Geek Love. I love that book. And uh, when I saw American Horror Story, I was like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> I love Geek Love, and and it's such an amazing story of family and the strange things that we do as a family unit. That uh, I would love to adapt that. Uh, I'd like to try to get Kurt Vonnegut right. I don't think anyone's been able to do that. I think the two-hour format is not the right format for something so innovative and, mm. and, and, you know, that, that tone of voice and, and the inventiveness of, of that work. So <laughs> just another Mad Max movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can spend the rest of the time talking about Mad Max. If, if, if you, um, yeah, you, you brought up, uh, the number of hours, uh, a couple of times, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty much a general consensus, right? That shorter, for the most part, for TV is better and is liberating, even if it means not necessarily you know making as much money or or, or whatnot. Uh, but in terms of that, I mean, you know, um, it, has that been pretty much a accepted great thing for showrunners? This this idea of doing shorter and shorter seasons. Absolutely, it's uh, doing thirteen. Ep I one of my first job on Star Trek was twenty four episodes a season, a season, and it was it was a stupid amount of work because right around episode thirteen, everybody was exhausted. So thirteen through seventeen were shitty episodes because everybody's like, "Well, let's just have a spaceship possess Tom Paris because uh, you're just so tired." And then you're like, "Oh my God, we're screwing it up." We're, and then you get your energy back around eighteen or nineteen and kind of plow through. So. 13 is so exhausting that um, I can't imagine doing more now. And it allows my OCD to be as meticulous as I can in the time constraints. So I feel like 10 is, is the sweet spot because right about 10, you're like, oh, if we're doing 10 episodes, we would be done. And it's such a strange, because show running is the stupidest job in the world in terms of the amount of work and the amount of of plate spinning that you have to do so doing more is bad <laughs> we could all move to england where a season is there's gonna be three episodes fuck off <laughs> that's not a job that's a hobby <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think that the story should dictate yeah. how long it is, you know what I mean? And and we sort of came at 10 ar kind of arbitrarily just to distinguish it from a season of, of television. But it turned out to be the perfect length because any longer and you have to introduce another story, you know what I mean? Like, and 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 so it felt like to set it up in the first half and pay it off in the second half, that felt like a perfect number of hours. But if I'd had to do 13, then I would have had to come up with some other element to then introduce. And, and it's, it starts to take on a different shape, you know, because it just, um, you know, you, you want it to feel complete and like it builds in the right way and pays off in the right way. And you don't ever want those filler episodes where it feels like, okay, well, they're just vamping because, you know, they've got to fill their order. 
we uh, we break down 13 episodes into two chapters. So we have a seven episode season and a six episode season, which allows us to tell two different stories, have two different climaxes. And it's so much easier to put things in bite-sized digestible pieces than to spread it out. Cause I'm, I'm not in the mind of the episodic anymore. It just, it doesn't interest me and it's not character based. So, um, I love splitting it into splitting even a small season into two seasons actually gives us a lot of, of nitro. Yeah, and I, I think it's just so much more attractive as as a viewer too. It's like you know you you have that that commitment you make in your head. Oh, 10, 13 episodes. Okay, I, I can handle that. And when I like watch like uh, Silicon Valley, I'm just like, oh my god, there's only this many more left. You know, so it, it increases my eagerness and desire as as a viewer. It's it's daunting, especially when you're binge watching and you're like, oh, it's only ten episodes. That's two. That's that's the flight to New York and it's the flight back. I can <laughs> I can do a season in a trip. So it it does fewer episodes become so much more appealing right. to as an audience member because I just don't have twenty two hours to commit to one show. Remember, TV campers, this year, due to the pandemic, ATX Festival Season 9 is going virtual, June 5th through 7th, 2020. It's ATX TV from the couch. For information about the status of the festival, go to atxfestival.com or follow us on social media at ATX Festival. Now, back to the panel. Uh, we should open up to some questions, see if anyone has any questions. Uh, yes, go ahead. You all uh, spoke about rights a little bit. Uh, could you talk about what the process is for determining, especially when you're adapting from several works, what the process is for determining what you can use, what you can't use, what you want to use, and how that all comes together? Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, one of the harder things with older material is how convoluted the rights can be sometimes, you know, of who owns what and people have claims to things. And, you know, I, for me, we obviously we have the rights to the movie Fargo and we don't have the rights to any of the other movies. And, and so, you know, I'm not stealing plots or anything from, from other films. Um, but, you know, the process in, in trying to secure the rights is either you reach out to the right holder, which is usually the author if it's a book or, or um, you know, if it's a movie or a TV show, it can be a little convoluted too, but who's the studio that made it? And, and um, you know, you, you have to work out a deal. Usually there's an option um, period, which is a smaller sum of money. And then if you actually go ahead and make it, then there are all these, you know, you, there, there are all these other um, components to the deal. And usually, you know, for us that those deals are done by the studios that we work with. So it's not like we're in the trenches hammering out, hammering out a deal. Sometimes you are the, 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 uh, on Hannibal, we, the rights were kind were odd because the Martha De Laurentiis had the rights to red dragon, but the rights are not broken down by book. They're broken down by characters in the book and the origin. So any character that originated in Red Dragon, we have access to any character that originated in Silence of the Lambs, we don't have access to. Any character that's in the other books, we have to 
pay like a $3,500 rental fee per episode <laughs> for that character per oh. character. Or it's like, sometimes it's a bit more. So like the vergers we had to rent from the people who had the book Hannibal. So it's, uh, and I, I keep on going back to MGM every year and saying, can we have more than Clarice, I want Buffalo Bill. Like that's the story that I feel like we could really unpack in an interesting way. So, uh, but they're like, what's ours is ours and what's yours is yours. And and I, I, I am trying to figure out a way to make it mutually beneficial to both studios. So, and that's the thing there. They have their own series that they've been developing for a while and it hasn't got traction. So, because I've been, I have a voodoo doll and I'm sticking pins. <laughs> in that and so hopefully i would love for this show to be a definitive hannibal story and include clarice but right now mgm uh who almost had all of the hannibal deals in in their grasp and it was one of those where like they had the meeting and they were going to get the rights to red dragon as well and then galmont swooped in and offered a bigger better deal and then they were like fuck you, you're not getting Clarice. So um, we have to figure out how to circumvent that fuck. I'll call, them. <laughs> I'll call them, they like me. Oh, good, good, please, please. Yeah, so we had the rights to the story, and as I said earlier, we got some other rights to writing the rap for one episode. Um, and then there were limitations of any other characters we could bring in. Um, so when Carla Gugino, who had played Karen Sisko on ABC's show, showed up in season two or three, Fred, do you remember? Three. Let's just say it was three. What the hell? It's all done now. <laughs> um, Car Carla came and she was absolutely not playing Karen Cisco, even though her first name was Karen. <laughs> she was now Karen Goodall. And the fact that the Cisco kid's real name was Goodall, the complete coincidence. <laughs> so. uh, someone else have a question? Hi, um, my question's for Brian. Um, I was just wondering, do you feel more pressure this season? Because in the past, you know, nobody knows what Hannibal Lecter was like when he was um, when he was practicing. Nobody knows really what Will and Hannibal's conversations were like. But now we're entering in that red dragon world, so it's all kind of laid out for um, the viewer. So I was just wondering if you feel any stress from that. Um, it was the, the stress was all of the great chunks of Red Dragon that we used in the first two seasons. And then when we got to this scene, there was there was one point where uh, and I would try to be very careful about not doing this because I knew even in season one when I was taking passages and weaving them into the story that there was going to be some overlap. And I was just thinking like, OK, future me will just come up with something similar that's not exactly. And I got a call from Hugh Dancy once uh, in the third season when we were doing the Red Dragon arc. And he's like, didn't I didn't I say this to Abigail in the first season? And I was like. Yes, you did. Like, I had to go back because there's so many things that I cut out and I put in in the scripts and then like almost a quarter of dialogue is cut out of our scripts are like 36 pages long. They're they're very short. So um, I cut out so much that I put in there and I think, okay. And the actors are always like, I said this before. And I was like, yes, it's a great quote from the books. And I cut it out so you can say it again. And uh, that, that was the biggest stressor because it's, it's actually kind of 
a relief to know, well, this story works. So now I just have to put gravy on the meat and make sure that it's succulent. Let's see, do you want to do a quick tease of uh, your upcoming seasons with Graham with, uh, with Americans and, uh, and just sort of run down the line? So, um, Well, actually, I'll start with season seven of Justified. <laughs> uh, okay. Little boy grows up, yeah. Yeah. marries little Raylan girl. No, I don't know. I got no, I'm not going to tease the Americans. It's going to be an amazing season. The guys are already working on it because they wanted yeah. to break uh, in the summer. So uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, I don't know. What do I want to say or what am I allowed to say? Um, you know, I set up this thing in the first year, you know, at first it was just a backstory for Keith Carradine's character to talk about the massacre at Sioux Falls and, and, um, you know, a case that he'd seen in his youth that he could sort of warn his daughter, like I've seen this kind of thing before. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I thought, well, that's, that's really interesting to think, well, if we're going to do another year of this, how, I like the idea that it's connected in some way. So, um, so I set it up more going forward. Um, so yeah, this, this year, um, is the story of young, uh, Luce Alverson, who's, um, now played by Patrick Wilson and, and, uh, um, you know, Molly, uh, is now is a six year old girl. It's uh, she's not a six year old boy, she's a six year old girl. And it's, uh, 1979. The story takes place in 1979. And it's, it's that story of, of what happened in, in Sioux Falls. Um, and you know, we see the young Ben Schmidt who was, uh, um, Gus's boss and, and, um, uh, you know, that's all I'll really say about it. Um, except that, you know, what, one of the things that I really, loved about it was was the time period and trying to make the this 19 the 70s into more than just a setting but to try to figure out well what were the real struggles going on and how do you turn that into a crime story so sounds great i i'm hoping <laughs> um this this season on hannibal which we just started uh, a couple nights ago um it's, there's two chapters. One is the Italian chapter. That's an amalgamation of Hannibal and Hannibal Rising. And that's the first seven episodes that gets into some fun stuff from the Hannibal movie and some different idiosyncrasies from the book. And then our second half is a six-episode Red Dragon miniseries. So that allows us to really dig deep and uh, try not to repeat the great passages of dialogue that we may have used from the book in previous seasons. <laughs> and you got uh, Neil Marshall to direct episode eight, The Great Red Dragon, which is a pretty good uh, score. He did the uh, the... The uh, penultimate, anti-penultimate. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. He, he's he's done you know several major uh, action episodes of Thrones, among other things. The big uh, giant attack on the wall. That was his episode. Yeah, it was great to work with him because I think The Descent is the best horror movie of the century. And uh, so I met him at an HBO Emmy party and uh, marched up to him and said, would you direct the first episode of the Red Dragon series? And he said, absolutely. So... Um, it's it's great because there's there's hardly any dialogue in it, and uh, you're with. We get to introduce the Francis Dollarhide character before he was a horrible murderer of families, and the whole goal of that was because in the, reading the book, I was so uh, sympathetic to his insanity and his struggle with his insanity that frequently forgot that. Oh yeah, he. 
he killed those people and, and raped their corpses. Um, so that was kind of fun to, <laughs> to, uh, to try to confuse the audience. And Neil was the, it was such a collaborative visual storyteller that uh, I'm very proud of the episode. And I think it's, it's new and different enough to people who've seen Manhunter and Red Dragon. It's a, it's a new version of the character. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about sort of modern television is it's, it's a cinematic medium now, you know, it's, it's about telling the story with the camera. Um, and I'm always, you know, thrilled when I could have four or five pages without dialogue where you're just telling the story with the camera and, you know, building suspense, but also allowing the characters to have moments and let, let things breathe. And, you know, FX is great on that level because, I've yet to make a 42 and a half minute episode for them. It's always, you know, I'm always skirting 50 minutes or even, you know, our opener last year was 68 minutes long. So, you know, the problem is I have to make what turns out to be 13 hours of television um, in a 10 episode box. So that's my fault. You know, it's like that I say to them, well, you know, we had all these long episodes and they're like, well, you don't have to, you know, they're, but they're not going to pay more for them, you know. So we just have to get cleverer with how we shoot stuff. And I, I just noticed you're wearing a uh, uh, This is a True Story bracelet. Yeah. And with uh, Graham and his Elmer Laird bracelet, I think uh, Brian bracelet. needs some sort of yeah. collector-related wrist jewelry. It like should be human out. teeth or something. <laughs> I have a Hannibal Lecter Prince Albert. <laughs> see. Uh, a does anybody have a question off that or about that or something else? Yes. Thanks. So with you guys, um, I guess, adapting and you want to stay true to the original source material, was there a certain point where you, you started feeling complete ownership of your own product? Like a moment where you're like, this is now mine. Is that a little weird question? No, it's actually a really good question. Um, I guess I... For me on Hannibal, it, I feel like I've skinned Thomas Harris and I'm walking around in his 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 person suit in a way because they're like he's always present because they're so whenever I get lost writing a scene or I'm like, what is this scene about? I'll just start reading the books again and then I'll be like, oh, that's what the scene is about. Where and it's not even in context of the scene that I'm writing, but I'll find a passage that actually is about the characters in a way, or has a turn of phrase that's so poetic that I want to put it in there. So I, Thomas Harris in our, in our writer's room, I basically say every scene should be one third Thomas Harris, one third real genuine psychology and one third our special sauce. And so every scene has Thomas Harris in him, in it. And uh, I don't think he intended some of the stuff that we're doing, but um, I, I still feel like it's his story that I'm telling. Yeah, I think you'd be paralyzed if if you felt like you had to check in even even mentally at every step of the way to go, well, is this a real Coen Brothers moment or is this a real Thomas Harris, you know, um, moment? But um, certainly we we should never forget, you know, who provided this opportunity for us to tell stories in this in this way and and. Um, you know what I what I love about um, Joel and Ethan is that they don't care. They're so down to earth. You know what I mean? That 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 it. You know, and they told me they said, "Look, it's not our medium. We don't 
you know, but you seem like you know what you're doing. So go and do your thing. And so I sort of took that to heart and I'm going to do my thing. And I don't know, maybe they, they would watch something and go, we would never do that. But at a certain point, you just have to take ownership creatively in making choices for how to tell these stories. And, and, you know, I, I'm fully risk, you know, um, you know, someone asked me at the TCAs last year, what's the subtitle for Fargo year two? And I said, it's, going to be called Fargo Backlash, you know, because, but, I mean, it's got to come at some point, I would imagine, but, but um, you know, I mean, for better or worse, um, we tell the stories we tell and, you know, people will like some more than others, I think, as we like some Coen Brothers movies more than others, you know. Hey, He's good. Dad. Okay. <laughs> Um, is there one piece of work out there that, like a popular title that you could see realistically being adapted for a series, but that nobody should ever touch? <laughs> Stumped at the panel. Don't make The Matrix as a television series. <laughs> <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to say because I think that the don't make that has been applied to everybody on this panel. Like there's been that approach and, and we've all found interesting ways into the material. So it's hard to say never mm -hmm. do something. Um, Cause I was like, I could see an interesting matrix TV series. <laughs> it could be something interesting. There. Yeah. Or full house. I'd love to see full house. Again. Fuller house. Uh, Graham, any thoughts? Yeah, full house, but it should be Brian Fuller House. Yes. Yeah, so oh, there, there you go. Weird what's going on in the house. attic? Oh, boy. Yeah. Who ate the Olsen twin? It would just we be, just have one. <laughs> it would just be too many cooks, like, over. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, any last question? As uh, for Brian, um, you mentioned how with Hannibal, you were somewhat emulating someone's voice. Um, and maybe wanted to get outside of that eventually, but you're about to leap back into American Gods. So was that- I know, I know! Is that just something that you couldn't pass up? And how's that going? Yes, it was, uh, it was something that uh, I had met Neil Gaiman a couple of times and he's a great seductor of men. So um, it was hard. It's just, it's such a great toy box. And um, Michael Green and I, who worked on the first season of Heroes together, we had, you know, I was raised Catholic, he was raised Jewish, and we both have a fascination with these great mythological stories. And we were talking one day uh, over lunch about how we wanted to work together again on something. And then, um, American Gods uh, came up and um, once again, it felt like a way to really unpack a story. And there's so much of that book that is a story of Shadow and Wednesday. And our approach is almost anthological, but we wouldn't tell the network anthological in that we get to see like Bill Quist, uh, who we see eat a man with her vagina in one chapter in the book and has never heard or seen from again. She's a main character and we get to tell stories that start in 5,000 years ago in ancient Babylonia and, and then see how she came to the modern day. So it feels like there's a lot of room and Neil Gaiman has given us a lot of room to really 
dig into the characters and he shared them with us. And it's an immigration story really at its heart. So it feels like we can unpack that in a way that allows us to tell a signature story. Well, uh, that's it. Uh, thanks, guys. Let, let's uh, give thanks. it up for our panel. This season of the TV Campfire is produced by ATX Television Festival in collaboration with Anthony Luciani and AJ Myers. For more information on this year's festival, go to atxfestival.com or check out our social media at ATX Festival.